right, everyone, welcome back to The Viewer. This is Dr. Jen. And Dr. Erica. Vagina, 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 vagina. Do it again. Vagina, 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 vagina. <laughs> welcome back. Today we are talking about birth control. All of it. What works best? What is most convenient? What do you want to use? And how to decide. Yeah. And we're also going to look, give a little bit of history um, to give you some context about birth control in the United States. Okay. So birth control, Erica, as you know, is sometimes an issue of controversy. Um, and I, I often, say that often. <laughs> I say that with like a question mark at the end because it's confusing to me why it is still to this day controversial to want to protect yourself against a pregnancy that's not wanted. But historically, that's always been the case as well. So getting into the little bit of the history of it, um, birth control, I think, is has always been sort of associated with promiscuity. And you go all the way back to like um, when America first became a country. And at that point, all of our laws, not just laws concerning reproductive health, were sort of based on um, common law, you know, like what sort of carried over to the colonies from the UK. Um, and actually abortion and contraception, it wasn't illegal um, initially, but as we started getting into the 1800s, you saw the U.S. start to, you know, form their own country, form their own laws, and um, specifically in terms of reproductive rights, you saw the U.S. individually, the states, start to pass their own uh, restrictions against all of these different reproductive health um, aspects. So, um, one salient point, in 1873, um, this is a point at which the majority of the U.S. had something called Comstock laws that were in place, um, and it's based on this douchebag. I'm just going to say it. This douchebag named Andrew Comstock. He was um, a U.S. state senator in New York. He also, I think, he was like the head of the postal something. Yeah, he he had something to do with the postal service because the laws actually prohibit prohibit the distribution right. of obscene materials. So, right. including birth control, as well as, like, pornography. Um, but the, distri- the bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the distribution was the key, and that's part of um, yeah, why. why he was involved. Yeah. So, so he gets involved. He is this very self-righteous guy who decides that you're not going to be allowed to, or it's going to be illegal to distribute obscene, lewd, um, lascivious material, and that includes contraceptions in, um, in the mail. Um, and sort of as time plays out, you see um, individual states, but then the country sort of get on this bandwagon, and suddenly it becomes very, very difficult to even talk about this material. Yes. Enter Margaret Sanger. Get it, girl. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of uh, myths about Margaret Sanger as well, but she was a visionary and the founder of, eventually the founder of Planned Parenthood. What? Who, um, who fought for the creation and the birth of the pill. There's actually a great book called The Birth of the Pill that kind of goes through the whole process. That I totally recommend. But she, along with um, several physicians, developed the first birth control pill in, that was released in 1960 called Anavid. And it contained... Wait, did she? She funded it. She, and she, she like, pushed for it. it. Yeah. Wow, get it. Wait, she, where did her money come from? Where is she? So there's another woman that I'm just blanking on her name right now, but who also was a big portion of the funding. The Birth of the Pill talks about four major characters who played into the creation of the birth control pill. That's so crazy. John Rock was um, one of the obstetricians. 
Um, oh, I'm totally blanking on the other guy's name. I feel like I should know this. But I feel like she never, like we never mentioned that. No one ever talks about how a lady funded oh, yeah. this whole thing. And the other, so the other funder is also a woman. Yeah, get it. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and you can see that these, and the early letters of Margaret Singer talk about her motivation for being able, women being able to control their reproduction. And throughout the whole process of developing the pill, there are letters from women saying, I cannot be pregnant another time. So this mm. is when women were just getting pregnant continuously, basically, because there was very little even knowledge about contraception or avoiding sex during fertile times of the month. Mm -hmm. So women were literally, like, the fertility rate in the U.S. was, like, 10 children per woman, which is basically constantly being pregnant or breastfeeding for 20 years. Oh, my God. And now we know most women in the U.S., the average woman desires two children, which means they spend about 30-plus years of their life trying to avoid con avoid pregnancy. So right. contraception is a huge way that women can gain control of your li their lives. If they're pregnant for 20 years, pregnant or breastfeeding, it's really hard to do literally anything else. And the health impact is huge for women. So um, that's talked a lot about in The Birth of the Pill, so I definitely great, recommend great that. Excellent yeah. book. Okay, so we're starting out with... Um, you know, the first, well, I guess if you went back even further, the first birth control really isn't even a pill. I mean, women were shoving all kinds of things up their hoo-hahs, yep. up their vaginas um, to try to prevent pregnancy. And, you know, they don't, most of those did not work. But the first thing that really um, people could start to rely on that really worked was this pill. Um, but the problem is, um, let's let's talk about this initial pill, your, your grandmother's pill, we'll say. It was really, really high in hormone levels. Um, particularly so it, estrogen. Right, particularly estrogen. So it worked, but it also came with a lot of side effects, a lot of risk factors. Um, so the things we often think about today, like blood clots, heart attacks, stroke, all of those things um, were a lot more dangerous with this pill because we're talking about just a huge amount more hormone than what's available yeah. today. But all birth control pills um, today, all combination birth control pills, still contain estrogen and progesterone, though there's lots of variation in the types of progesterone contained in them. And the estrogen dose now is much, much less, which reduces all of these sort of dangerous side effects, but also some of the like nausea, vomiting, bloating side effects that also people typically associate with the pill. Right. So as we go on, so as we've gone through history, we see those decreases in the hormones, but we also see a de uh, difference in the delivery system of these hormones. So initially, everything was pills, 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 pills. But now you see so many different um, options. So we have, you can get your hormones injected into you, so like Depo-Provera, for example, and we're going to go through all of these. You can slap a patch on your skin and get your hormones that way. You can put your hormones in through a ring that goes in the vagina. Um, they can be, uh, you can have more of like a long-term uh, method, like an implantable device. Or an um, IUD. Or an IUD. We'll get into all of those, the, the LARC methods, the long-acting reversible contraceptive methods. Um, so there's a lot more delivery systems now. And that's just one way that we think about what is the best form of birth control for people. And the vast majority of women in the U.S. have used a type of contraception. So this is a really important thing in the discussion about birth control, that there is a lot of, um, like, sort of bogus political comments of, like, women don't really need birth control. Women don't really want birth control, especially, oh like, religious women don't want birth control. But that's not true. We know that 
most religious women have also used a type of birth control and that the desire to not be pregnant for 20 years of your life is something that just has nothing to do with it's religion. Universal, right? Yeah. Like at, at some point in your life, I don't care who you are, you're if you are fertile, you're thinking about not being fertile at some point in your yeah. life. And additionally, which comes up a lot with the ACA and some of that coverage is lots of women use contraceptives for non-contraceptive reasons. So um, there are women that use birth control pills or IUDs or things like that for some of their side effects. So menstrual regulation, decreasing total blood loss, decreasing the number of periods that people have during a month um, to decrease experiences of like PMS and things like that. So right. there are also lots of non-pregnancy prevention reasons why these methods are really helpful. For sure. Okay, so one common, um, one common number that gets thrown around a lot <clears throat> is in addition to like the percentage of people who are using them, um, are what happens when you when you aren't using birth control pills. So, um, or birth control methods. Birth control methods, I should say, birth control methods. So, of all pregnancies in the U.S., um, and again, these numbers just pertain to the U.S. right now. About half of them, or fifty-one percent, are unintended pregnancies, and those numbers come from um, lots of different studies, but also will be referencing the Guttmacher Institute a lot. This is sort of like a think tank for reproductive rights. It's really great. A lot of good public health um, and reproductive health policy research comes from the Guttmacher. So of all pregnancies, half are unintended, or unintended. And of the ones that are unintended, half of those end up in abortion. So just to put numbers to this, you're talking about a lot of people who potentially are at risk of getting pregnant, who don't want to be pregnant, um, and who, you know, if if they had access and, and the appropriate education would be using birth control. This affects a lot of people. That's right. And we know of women who have unintended pregnancies, uh, over half of them are not using a type of contraception and that the other half basically are using contraception inconsistently. So the biggest risk of an unintended pregnancy is lack of contraceptive use, which is sort of makes sense, but is worth saying that it's backed up by data. Okay. So there's a lot of numbers. I want to talk about the actual yeah. stuff. Yeah, so let's talk about um, how we counsel people yeah. about birth okay. control. Okay, you be, you be the doctor. You be doctor. I'll be the doctor. <laughs> let's play doctor Eric. Okay. You well, be doctor. I'm patient. Okay. okay. So, so one thing I usually start with with patients is asking people what is important to them about birth control. I don't want to get knocked up. So efficacy, efficacy is important okay, to you. Okay, call it what you want. I yeah. can't get knocked up right now. Yeah, so, but with a caveat here, I'll say not to my pa fake patient, Jen, but also to real <laughs> patients, is that we used to counsel everyone for the most effective methods. We used to sort of have this sense that everyone should be on the most effective method of birth control. And we've sort of shifted our philosophy as OBGYNs and throughout the medical community in sort of in keeping with um, a sort of thought school of thought called reproductive justice, which is really saying that women know their own needs the best and that we should really, like anything we do in medicine, evaluate what their needs are before telling them recommendations. So for contraception, for example, efficacy is not always the most important thing okay. to people. Okay, I, ch I changed my mind. <laughs> the efficacy doesn't matter to me so much now, I just really don't want periods. Don't want periods. I don't want to be pregnant and I don't want to be in periods. No. So there we go. Okay. So, so great. <laughs> great. That, that would shift how I counsel it. Totally. Okay. All right. Ready. Um, but go. let's actually go back to efficacy because it's a little bit easier. 
to counsel in those categories and okay. to group them in okay, those categories. Fine. So fine. care more it. about not getting pregnant, <laughs> Jen. Okay, I really care about not getting pregnant right now. Go, okay. Go. So there's sort of three tiers of contraception, the way we group them. And there are lots of charts available of this. There's on the um, CDC website. There's also a great website that we want to refer everyone to called bedsider.org that kind of goes through all the contraceptive options and has lots of information about them. Can we just talk about Bedsider too? Yeah. It's, it's really sexy. Like I really like Bedsider. It has, a, it like looks beautiful and it also has yeah. great clean lines. Yeah. But, and like, <laughs> but also you can click on things. So it, there are buttons at the top that say like non-hormonal options and then it only shows you the non-hormonal options or but like, it'll be like, party ready. I need my birth control to be party ready. So what can I like take right now and then go to a party and not have to worry about it. It's just, it's like very acknowledging of real life, which is great. Real life. Um, I like it. But the first category, uh, if we're going into efficacy, if if that's how we're dividing the birth control, is the most effective options. Mm -hmm. So this highest category of methods or this most effective category is really non-user dependent, meaning it doesn't matter if you remember to use them or not because they will work no matter what. And these are really methods that are implanted. So we think about the IUDs, for example, that are, remain in the uterus, whether you remember they're there or not. We think about sterilization. I hope you remember that you have one in you. Yes, <laughs> remember, but you don't have to think about it before you go to a party. And then sterilization, which is um, either a vasectomy for men or getting your tubes tied for women. Um, and then the implant, which um, the available one in the U.S. is called the Nexplanon. So those are all options that are long-acting, they're reverse, uh, except for sterilization, they're reversible, and really not user-dependent. Most right. effective methods, less than one in 100 women okay. get pregnant with these the methods. The best, the best methods. That's yes. Say. For efficacy. Yeah, so maybe why not? Yeah, maybe it's not better for, for someone else. Yeah, but totally. The, but I would say hands down, like, if you want to put all your eggs in one basket... And prevent and prevent one, pregnancy for one contraception basket. <laughs> okay, tier two, and I like to think of these methods as, eh, <sighs> I shouldn't I shouldn't be so judgy because you know it's it's way better than than nothing for someone if they're trying to conceive or, or not conceive. But what's the rate of pregnancy in this second? But it's but it's basket. not as um, it's not as effective, right? So if you we like to say usually mm, six to nine out of every one hundred women using these methods are going to get pregnant, and they are the pill, the patch, the ring, the depo shot, and they're great. Like if you're remembering to take them and you're using them perfectly, perfect use, as we say, then then it's going to work a lot better. But the problem is there's a lot of room for user error, right? So if you're doing the shot or you know the ring or whatever, and you forget to come in for your appointment for the shot, or you're out busy, you go on a vacation, you forget your ring at home. Obviously, it's not going to work because you're introducing some right. error there. You're not and using same, it. And same thing if you're taking other medications. Right. Sometimes they can, these can interfere. Um, right. So that's why these methods are less effective. Right. So. Yeah, and maybe we can get into, like, situations yeah. in which one, you know, maybe I, I want to use one of these methods over an IUD or something. Totally. But, but not as reliable. Okay, last category. Our last category is the not as effective category. This category mostly includes what we call sort of on-demand options or options that only have to do with intercourse. So one of the most commonly used options in this category is withdrawal. So I was sort of surprised to learn that withdrawal is like so much more commonly used as a primary method of birth control than I thought. Yeah. Um, In the same category as condoms um, and then something called fertility awareness or natural based methods, which are really timing intercourse so that you're avoiding the most 
fertile time period of the month. Ooh, and actually, let's at let's at some point in this talk about these new apps. Yes, yes. Oh my god, these new apps that are like they're playing up fertility awareness as like a whole new method of contraception and like a lifestyle yeah like a lifestyle like I just pay attention to my app and that's how I either conceive or don't conceive I'm not saying it doesn't work but it is definitely not on par with like yeah and the studies are a little bit flawed so we can definitely talk about that Okay, um, so that's sort of the categories of methods. Let's get into like the nitty gritty of the most common ones that yeah. people use. Okay, I want to be a patient again. Okay, <laughs> Just, okay, okay. Um, so first, let's talk about the pill because I feel like that's the one everyone. I don't want the pill. <laughs> everyone knows the most about. Fine. Okay, Dr. Erica, I came in. Um, uh, yeah, I want some birth control, and my grandma used the pill. My mom used the pill. Everyone in my life used the pill, so I want to use the pill. Okay. <laughs> you sound really determined. Do you want to hear? I would always ask everyone if they want to hear about other options. I don't want to hear about anything else. Tell me about the pill. Great. Why does it work? What is Perfect. it doing to my body? Someone told me that it's like tricking my body that I'm pregnant. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> a great question. And that is a really common misconception. So the pill, that when we think of like, quote, the pill, it's a combination of estrogen and progesterone. It's taken in a daily pill, usually for three weeks, and then there's one week of placebo pills, though many women also take it continuously, so they skip the placebo pills and just move on to the next pack. The Each pill, in most pills available in the U.S., contains the same amount of progesterone and estrogen in each pill. And what it does is it doesn't really convince your body that you're pregnant, but it convinces your body you're at the second half of your menstrual cycle. Mm. So we can talk a little bit more about what the menstrual cycle involves, but with ovulation, you basically release an egg, If it does not become fertilized, it turns into something called the corpus luteum. And the corpus luteum hangs around unfertilized for 14 days, and then it basically, like, dissolves, dies, and goes away. That sounds awful. (laughs) It happens every month for most women. Every month? Yeah. So the corpus luteum secretes progesterone during this whole time, this whole second half of the menstrual cycle. So what the pill is really mimicking is that second half of the cycle – progesterone. During that time, it makes sense in your body that you wouldn't want to release another egg because there's already an egg sort of out there in the world. Right. Okay. So it's not mimicking pregnancy so much as what we call the luteal phase. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, There are pills that only contain progesterone and those are much less effective because the half-life or how quickly they are absorbed and and released from your body is much quicker. And so you really have to take them the same exact time every day or they become less effective. Right, Um, mini pill, we call them the mini pill. Yeah, within actually three hours. So if you're more than three hours late, it's like missing an entire pill. Yeah. Um, Whereas with the actual pill, it's really missing a day. Okay, uh, let's talk about the patch. Yeah. So the patch is kind of the same idea. And I'll, I'm going to group the ring into this too, actually. So the ring, the patch, mm-hmm. kind of the same idea as the pill in that you have the two hormones, estrogen and a progestin. Different progestins. There's different kinds. That's sort of a category. Um, but instead of taking the pill every single day and um, getting you know little spikes of this hormone every single day, you're just taking it less often and, and having a more sustained release. So the patch, you're typically putting it on every single week. You take it off for a week to, you know, have your fake period. <laughs> we'll talk about fake periods in a sec, if you want. Um, and then the ring, same thing, three weeks at a time, one week out. Although some people, like, similar with the pill, like what you're saying is, if you don't want to have that little fake period, the placebo week, whatever, you could take the ring out um, after three weeks. You could put another ring in for another three weeks, and you could keep doing that and never have a period. We could talk about the pluses and minuses. But anyway, all three of these, estrogen and progestins, 
Um, same sort of concept as to what it's doing in your body and also same potential risks, risks and benefits. So um, like we were talking about before with the really, really high dose of the pills that were initially around, if you are someone who is um, yourself or has a family history of a risk for blood clots, stroke, heart attack, those are things that potentially could be more risky if you're on a method with estrogen. Um, and the reason is that estrogen helps you or causes you to clot, your blood to clot more easily. So if you have already a risk factor for blood clots or the um, things that come downstream from that, then you don't want to be on a method with estrogen. That said, pregnancy and particularly the postpartum period are much more risky for clots than any type of contraception. So it's always safer to use a contraception than to be pregnant. Absolutely. So this is another thing too. We often talk about in terms of um, so we've already talked about the efficacy, but in terms of like the risks now of, of birth control, any risk of, uh, you know, while on birth control needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It needs to be put side by side on a table with the risks of that exact same condition if you were pregnant, because that's the alternative, Erica, right? Right. The alternative isn't, I'm just not going to take this birth control and maybe I won't get pregnant. The alternative is, crap, now I'm pregnant, and, you know, the risk of heart attack or insert whatever disease here right. is probably a lot worse when you're pregnant than if you were on this pill. Yeah, so I think also there are some benefits to these options, too. We've talked about some of the downsides, but the pill, the patch, and the ring are combined estrogen and progesterone options. The Some of the benefits are you can regulate your menses. So if that is important to people, you can really dictate when you have a period or as Jen's saying, a fake period, which is really a withdrawal bleed. There's no medical reason to have that withdrawal bleed, but some women like to have that. Um, there's some women who take these methods, use these methods continuously, sometimes will have some irregular spotting if they never have that withdrawal bleed. So those are like the real reasons to have the withdrawal bleed, but there's no um, medical reason to have a withdrawal bleed every month. So all these methods can be used continuously and some people really like that. Yeah. But they're but, basically different delivery methods of the same hormones. Okay, so in that same category is Depo. And Depo, I think, honestly, should probably float between the first two categories because it is sort of long-acting if you get like a three-month-at-a-time dose. And during that uh, dose, like while you have it on board, you aren't going to get pregnant. Um, but the issue is you're having to come back every three months, and that's not very realistic for a lot of people. So if you miss that next dose um, and you're a little bit late in getting your next depo shot, then potentially you have a window there wherein you could get pregnant, so the efficacy is is lower. Um, when you talk about people getting pregnant on depo, because we've all probably heard stories like, oh, I was on depo and I got pregnant, um, that is an example of a luteal phase pregnancy, usually. So that's typically like they were five seconds pregnant, and they didn't even know it. Like they had just ovulated, they had had sex, um, it was too early to take a pregnancy test, but they went in and got their next dose of Depo and, and they happened to be pregnant already. Not harmful, like certainly you could take any of these methods, you know, while you were pregnant and it wouldn't necessarily hurt the pregnancy, right? Because These are all hormones in right. pregnancy. <clears throat> right, um, but just, you know, bad timing. Yeah. One thing I wanted to go back and add about the ring, the ring has to be constantly in place in the vagina to be effective. So one of the things that we find with women who get pregnant while using the ring is that they take it out for sex. So it can be left in for sex, but some women like to take it out during sex. But then it has to be placed back in the vagina within three hours of sex. So no like having sex, going to sleep, putting it back in the I next forgot. morning. I forgot. Okay, you want to hear a story? 
Yeah. Always. Um, I once had this patient who was um, having sex with the ring-in because you can do that. Totally fine. Totally fine. Um, and then all of a sudden her partner like got this like look of like horror and shock on his face and pulled out and was like, what the hell? And she's like, what was wrong? What's wrong? And she, and he thought that she was playing a trick on him. He looked down, the ring had like gotten around his penis. Oh, wow. Like completely around it, which shouldn't happen, right? Like, we, you know what? Let's Insta this. I'm going to Insta a picture of how the ring normally fits in the vagina. It should not like. Be able to come down. It should not become a penis ring. Yeah. But it did. And she, um. Which, yeah, whatever. They were totally fine, but he thought she was trying to play some kind of, like, trick on him. Oh, this is why it's always good to be able to communicate with your sexual partners. Oh. And your gynecologist. And your gynecologist. Okay. Um, all right. So then maybe let's talk about some of the on-demand options like condoms. So one of the big benefits of condom that none of these methods, including our most effective methods, have is that they also protect against STDs. So yes. particularly gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, HIV, which is really important and none of these other methods protect against. No. There will, I mean, there will always be a market for condoms, right? Yeah. We always need condoms. And you can obviously use these other methods in conjunction with condoms to protect against sexually transmitted infections. Um, but one of the downsides to comment, there are lots of downsides to condoms, right? Like you have to remember to use them. Your partner has to be agreeable to using them. They sometimes break, they sometimes slip, all these things. So condom use when it's consistent every time is slightly more effective, but we actually see about 24 in 100 women get pregnant use it while mm-hmm. using condoms. Um, so... 25%. That's a pretty big right? failure rate. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, and then withdrawal is pretty similar. So there's a thinking of withdrawal that there's no sperm being released and you can't get pregnant without sperm. But we know from studies that there's actually sperm in the pre-ejaculate fluid and sometimes that's enough um, to, to get pregnant. Plus, it's hard to time withdrawal perfectly. And so it requires a lot of awareness on the male partner's part and a lot of um, agreement and consistency. So same thing, about 25% of people will get pregnant using withdrawal. Okay. Fertility awareness. And I feel like this is a good time to talk about those apps too. So um, the idea behind this is that if you are aware of your fertility times, if you are in sync with your cycle, you can either prevent or try to get pregnant if you do it right. Um, Yes, in theory, good call, right? I mean, if you could use an app or a calendar to, to figure out when you're going to be ovulating, you can either choose to have sex during those times or not choose to, um, and then, you know, uh, avoid any of these hormones, avoid any of these methods. But the problem is, Erica, huge problem, is that that really relies on this underlying assumption that your period is normal. That means every single month you're having your period at the same time. You can predict with clockwork when you're ovulating. And in reality, that is not true. I mean, um, just in general, uh, people's cycles fluctuate throughout the month. Not every cycle is the same length. Um, And in addition, I think we see other conditions like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which can sort of throw ovulation out of whack. Which is um, sometimes undiagnosed. Undiagnosed, but, coming into play, right? Yeah. And even like stress or stress. other things can affect um, yep, exactly. cycle length. With more and more people um, 
facing obesity as well. Uh, that's another thing that, you know, um, that can affect when you ovulate, how you ovulate your cycles. And that's a big thing uh, in America currently anyway yeah. also. So there's a lot of different things that can make it really hard to rely on just an app. Um, that being said, if you have completely normal cycles and you can rely on it and you don't want to use hormones, fine. I think, you know, it's always smart to apply education where you can and to try to, you know, take control of your health and your reproductive life. Um, but I would never, never recommend this as a first-line method for someone just straight out the gate because of these reasons. Well, and it requires a lot of effort. I think sometimes, especially in our sort of like millennial world of just like, oh, I have an app and I'll just like click on my phone when I have a period and everything will be clear. True fertility awareness requires assessment of cervical mucus, sometimes requires assessment of basal body temperature. And some of these applications take that into account, but it really is needs to have like a baseline assessment of all the factors involved in predicting ovulation. Yeah. It's really time intensive. And we've done studies looking at whether or not doctors or patients can predict ovulation, the day of ovulation, because we also try to do that sometimes for fertility studies, and we're incredibly bad at it. Right. We are incredibly right. bad at it, even in women with regular periods. Well, and so. And I'll say too that like a lot of these, when we say fertility awareness, um, methods. We're kind of like clumping them all together. You can really break it down and get into the nitty gritty. Some of them are like only measuring cervical mucus. Some are bas only, you know, basal body temperature. There's so many different types. People have looked at mm -hmm. this, this way and that. Um, but I think it's fair, it is fair to clump them all together because in terms of efficacy, which as we've said, when it comes down to the bottom line, like that's, why are you using a birth control method? The majority of the people are using it to not get pregnant. So that, you know, I, I know we don't like to make assumptions about what matters most to someone, but that matters a lot to a lot right. of people. Um, and so, you know, regardless, this whole group of, of methods is not as effective. But it may be the right thing for some women, right? And it's totally, it's, we are all about awareness of your own body and awareness of what is happening in your body. And maybe it would be great to use these methods in conjunction with other things for some women, but, but there are some women who accept this higher risk of pregnancy and the benefit of avoiding hormones and sort of being in touch with their body is, makes this yeah. a good method for them. And so it works, it yeah. works for them. Oh, wait, Stop. before we leave fertility awareness though, I, I want to add this part actually probably before. So okay. how fertility awareness basically works is that when the egg is released, it's basically around and available for fertilization for 24 hours, like only 24 hours. That's the only time the egg is available to be fertilized. So it's sort of amazing that anyone gets pregnant ever. But sperm can hang around for about five days. And so we call this like fertility window, basically the six days around ovulation. So the like four or five days before and the one day after ovulation occurs. But we are incredibly bad at predicting when that ovulation happens. And so for people who are practicing fertility awareness, there may be even like a two-week period where they cannot have unprotected, otherwise unprotected intercourse. So for some women, that works really well. Like they're having sex irregularly or they feel comfortable saying like, we will use condoms during this more um, fertile time period. But it's like two weeks of every month when you really can't have unprotected sex. So. It's a method that takes a lot of effort and a lot of partner communication and participation. Mm, a lot of work. Okay. Let's talk about LARC. And then yes. um, we'll get into some emergency contraception because 
That counts. Always good to have a backup plan. Always good. Plan B or C or D. Okay, Lark, long-acting reversible contraception. So when we say this, we're talking about a whole group of methods that are longer acting than even the Depo shot in three months, um, but that also are not permanent. So another way that they've often been referred to is HERC, highly effective reversible contraception. I didn't catch on as much. Lark. Okay, so... Lots of different IUDs, but essentially two different categories of IUDs. There's one with hormones, one without hormones. The one without hormones is wrapped in this copper wire. And the idea is that something about that copper wire makes it so the sperm cannot swim as well, is not as mobile, and can't reach the egg, can't get to where it needs to get. There's also some other um, effects it has on the uterus and the architecture, but that's the primary mechanism, that the sperm are just kind of not working. Um, with the hormonal method, those hormones uh, or those IUDs have a hormone called levonorgestrel in them. Which and is a progesterone. Which is a progestin, yeah. And there's a bunch of different doses, actually. Um, the Mirena, which is the one I think we think of most commonly, so has first, right? 52 milligrams, yeah. There's also um, what Liletta, which is called the, the generic, I guess, Mirena, which is the same exact dose. Um, and then there's a couple other methods, Kylina and Skylet, that have a little bit lower dose. And just to put this in, in um, perspective, too, the Marina, the Liletta, these are already incredibly, incredibly low dose mm. devices. And so now we're, we're basically splitting hairs and getting even smaller. But the way these work primarily is by making that mucus inside the cervix that's normally there thicker. So the sperm cannot get through, really. They can't penetrate through this, the mucus and get to the egg again. So the idea with all of them being, we can't, the sperm and the egg can't meet as easily as they would. Um, Cervical mucus is kind of amazing. Like it's yeah. always amazing to me that that works so well that less than one in a hundred women will get yeah. pregnant. Yeah, I mean it's glue, methods. right? It's like super yeah. gluing your cervix shut, kind of. Except not really. Like we could really get through it if we wanted to, but the sperm can't. Yeah, <laughs> they cannot. Idiots. <laughs> sperm. Oh, sperm. There needs to okay. be so many of them. All right. So anyway. So, um, and then the implant. So the next planon is the one we're referring to here in the U.S. Same idea. Also a progestin goes in your arm. Um, really easy to insert with all of these, really. And then for, for three years, that one is protecting um, against pregnancy as well. So kind of to put them all in perspective, next planon, three years. Um, the Skyla IUD, three years. The Mirena, the Liletta. Um, Marina was initially approved for five. There's studies to see if it can go longer. Liletta is approved for, uh, well, FDA approved only for four at this point, but it's designed for eight. Um, and then the copper IUD, 10 in the U.S. FDA approved, but in Europe we use it um, till 12. So um, long acting. Certainly you don't have to keep these methods in for that long. You could pull them at any time, really. So say you decided you didn't like it or you wanted to get pregnant, really easy to take them out. And the great thing is that um, unlike some of the other combined hormonal methods, when you remove these, your fertility is supposed to come back to the same point at which it would normally be for however old you were when you took it out. Um, and that's, you know, compared to something like the birth control pill, I mean, certainly you could miss one pill and get pregnant, but a lot of times people will stop their birth control pills trying to get pregnant, and it'll take several months for their cycles to regulate again. So if you're looking for a method where you, like, absolutely this sec, I want to, like, use it up until the moment I'm ready to get pregnant, and when I'm ready to get pregnant, I want to stop it and make sure that my fertility is where it needs to be, that's going to be Lark. Okay. Um, oops. <laughs> My method didn't work, Erica. 
I was using the pills like you told me to because my grandma, my mom, everyone else used them, and I missed a couple. It didn't work. What do I do? So, not pregnant yet. No, not yet. No, I just like I just had sex like two minutes ago. I just came right from two the minutes ago, right from the bedroom, and it. Um, I forgot my pills, so I'm really worried. Great. So, that's all right. We have a backup plan for you. He's in the car. <laughs> That's <laughs> nice. That's where it happened. Um, so there are three major categories of what we call emergency contraception. So birth control that you can actually use after unprotected sex. And so missing three pills is actually unprotected sex if you're having sex during that period of time because it's sort of out of the window of efficacy. The most effective type of emergency contraception is actually insertion of the copper IUD. What? Get yeah. out. Get Within. out. No. Get out. No, put it in. Put it in. <laughs> Stay. Yeah. Um, the copper ID can be placed up to five days after unprotected intercourse and is still incredibly effective. Um, obviously, can we just pause for effect there? Because that's crazy, right? Like no one... Yes. No, I think this is really underutilized. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah. And you can leave it in place for 10 to 12 years if you want to. Two birds, one stone. Yes. There are myths about emergency contraception in general, um, that it is an abortifacient or causing an abortion, but we know that none of these methods are really effective once a fetus has been formed or an embryo has been formed. They're really only effective before that point, and so that's an important myth to, for us to debunk. Yes. So even, okay, Erica, you'd be surprised. Like, I feel like we get consults from other physicians other learned doctors who are very confused by this. Like, it's very, very commonly misinterpreted, like you said. Emergency contraception, let's be very clear here, emergency contraception is not abortion. It's not an abortifacient, like you're saying. They work in completely different ways. Like you're saying, anything that causes an abortion is something that disrupts an already growing embryo, zygote, whatever, you know? Um, but this is acting before that happens. The primary mecha mechanism of action, the primary method in which this works is to stop the egg and the sperm from creating an embryo. That's right. And But this is an important myth because actually there's a lot of restricted access to these emergency contraceptions because pharmacies or hospitals or even doctors won't um, give women access to them because they're worried about that. So important. PSA. Um, the other options for emergency contraception are pills. So there are two versions of the pills available in the United States. One is um, levonorgestrel, which is the same progesterone in an IUD, but you take it in an oral pill form. In the U.S., it's most commonly available as Plan B, Plan B One Step, and it's basically one pill that you take. Usually, we recommend taking it within 72 hours of sex, of unprotected sex, and it is pretty effective. Less effective the farther you are from sex and less effective than the copper IUD, but still pretty effective. Um, the other pill is ulipristol acetate, which is marketed in the U.S. as Ella, and it works up to five days after unprotected intercourse. Same thing, less effective. Um, and both of them, levonorgestrel or Plan B is available over the counter, and ulipristol is available with a prescription. Yeah, so here's the difference here. So you have a little bit of a trade-off. Um, if you need to go in and just get something ASAP, plan B, fine, I think um, is going to be the option for you um, with a couple caveats, I'll say in a sec. But if you've waited longer than three days, if you're in that like three to five day window, um, 
then Ella is your is your go-to pill. But the issue, like you're saying, um, is that you do need that prescription, which can be hard to to get for some people. And it's more expensive. And it's more expensive. Um, well, I would just say too, like when you're like, if I just went into the store right now and I wanted emergency contraception, it's usually about like fifty bucks. Yeah. Which is, I know that sounds crazy, because if I'm like comparing fifty bucks to like, I don't know, several hundreds of thousands of dollars that it's gonna take to raise a kid or you know a thousand dollars to get an abortion like it doesn't seem like much but that's a lot of money for a lot of people yeah um okay so the other thing is weight so if you're trying to decide um as in body weight body weight yeah so if you are so get this if you're over 165 pounds plan b is actually not as effective and that's crazy because a lot of people are over 165 pounds that's not many women in the u.s right um ella is less effective if you're over 195 and a lot of people are over 195 pounds. That's right. So um, then, really, the copper IUD is your best choice. Yeah, I think if you are a woman who technically has the, carries a medical diagnosis of obesity, which is a BMI over 30, which a lot of women do, um, really your best bet for emergency contraception is that copper IUD. And there are some studies now that are in process that are looking at whether the doubling of these medications might be. Uh, more effective in women who are over these weights, um, but that so far we don't know the answer to that. So that's not something that's typically recommended. Yeah. Okay. All right. Ready? I have some Q and A for you, Erica. You ready for some Q and A? Why am I always the A? Yeah. <laughs> Fine. You ask me some questions. I'll answer. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so we can alternate. We can alternate. Okay. Hold on. Let me just find them. Okay. So our first question comes from a listener who is listed as anonymous. Um, and she wants to know what are the most common STDs that people are getting these days and how do I prevent them? Great question. We, you should first listen to our vagina, vagina, vagina episode. Yeah, that was a good one. Where we talk about chlamydia. Chlamydia. Which apparently is called the clap. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, those are the ones we think of the most as, um, sexually transmitted infections, though genital warts are actually also incredibly common and herpes is becoming more and more common. So condoms will protect against gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas. They're not great at protecting against herpes or genital warts. And so if those are something that either you're dealing with or your partner's dealing with, it's good to avoid sex during outbreaks and to make sure that if, if possible, they're on suppression treatment. Okay. Um, do you have a question? Here's my question, Jen. This comes from another listener who is anonymous. Um, My doctor told me that I have to come in for a gonorrhea and chlamydia test and then come back for another appointment to have my IUD placed. Why? Why is I, that's Wait, my question for you? Oh. Why are they no. Why are they making me come back twice? It's so hard. It's so hard for my schedule. That's ridiculous. Okay. Yes. Okay. Good question. So your doctor may not be on the same page with the most recent guidelines. So technically, you don't need to come in, get your STD test, wait for the results, and then come back in and have your IUD placed. So technically, you can have it all done at the same time. Um, We can screen very easily for one of these STDs, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and then place the IUD. And then if the results come back positive, no big deal. We do not need to pull the IUD. We just give you a prescription for antibiotics and ta-da. The only caveat with that is that if you are already having symptoms, so if at the time that you come in to have your IUD placed, you're having symptoms of an active STD, that's a situation where your doctor may want to wait and treat you first. 
because the concern is that if you've got um, bacteria down there that can be pushed inside the uterus, you could end up with an infection that's much bigger than, you know, um, that it started with. But if it was an infection we didn't know about before, you actually, again, do not need to pull it. You just give antibiotics. Okay, so I think that's a good um, place to pause, to end for now. Um, certainly, we're going to be talking about birth control in future episodes because uh, how could you not? It's everywhere. It's, it's so important. It's everywhere in life. It's so important. Um, what are we talking about next? What's up next? So we're actually really excited about our next few episodes. We are going to be talking um, about some policy a few ways in which your reproductive health may be restricted without you even knowing. Um, just to give you a little preview, we'll be talking a little bit about how religiously affiliated hospitals may change what options are available to you, mm. um, as well as who pays for your birth control and who may not pay for your birth control. Who in the doesn't future. want to have anything to do with your birth control or anyone's birth control. Um, and then also we'll talk a little bit about pregnancy crisis centers, which are a whole big oh thing. Don't get me started. So this, yeah, oh, we got a lot coming up. Ugh, policy. <laughs> Why is the government trying to ruin women? I know uh, they care about us, Erica. I do not know. I, yes. Get out of my vagina. Get your paws, wait, keep your laws, how's it go? <laughs> keep your laws, paws off my laws. I feel like you're quoting Greece. Greece? Like, keep your... Isn't there a Rizzo line like, what? I don't know. Rizzo, I just don't. Keep your paws off my laws. Keep your I laws like... out of my vagina. <laughs> that definitely doesn't rhyme. <laughs> I love it. If you've loved this episode of The V Word, please head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at VWordPod, on Instagram at VWordPod, and send us an email, thevwordpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.